Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A main character in many a beloved horror movie has never had a line, said a word, or even been paid for its leading role. But its presence in many a blockbuster is everlasting. London has been host to a multitude of many a cinematic giant, and the capital lends itself as a varied and often lurid landscape to bolster the atmosphere required for many a horror film. From its historic graveyards through windy back streets, and even its major monuments, London has been a film star for a multitude of years. Today on Macabre London, we take a step into cinematic history and uncover the story of horror movies in the capital city. Welcome back to another episode of Macabre London. I'm Nikki Druce, your host with a silent G, and today I'll be taking you on a journey down another of London's grimy back streets to uncover a macabre tale from the city's past. And today you'll need a bucket of popcorn and to maybe dim the lights as we're stepping into the bloody world of London horror. However, before we get into today's episode, if you're new here and you want to see more videos where we deep dive into some lesser known historic tales from London's past, and in fact, all over the world, then please don't forget to subscribe or follow so you never miss a new episode. If you aren't new here and you regularly enjoy the show and you want it to continue, please consider supporting me on Patreon. The link is in the show notes. There's hours and hours of bonus content over there, including an extra podcast every fortnight with my long-suffering other half called Having a Problem, which is quite ridiculous, but it also has a bit of history thrown in too. And there's lots of other fun, spooky bonus bits and bobs too. So if you sign up to Patreon, you'll effectively get an episode from me every single week. 
So why not take a look on patreon.com forward slash macabre London? I'd love to see you over there. Now, it probably won't come as a surprise to you, but horror movies are a huge, huge passion of mine. Neil, my other half, often jokes that I never want to watch any other genre of film apart from horror movies, and he's right, I don't really. As long as I can remember, horror movies have always been something which make me very, very happy. When I was little, I often spent weekends staying at my grandparents' house and my gran loved horror movies. She was always watching whatever schlocky 50s B-movie was on some long-extinct Sky Channel late at night, and as long as me and my sister promised to behave ourselves, we were allowed to stay up and watch them with her. My gran was the epitome of scaring the living daylights out of you without even realising. The first ever horror movie she showed me when I was young was Night of the Living Dead by George A. Romero, and by showing me that cinematic masterpiece of his first ever film, I was hooked on horror. From then on out, it became a fun game for my grand to find anything that she deemed wasn't too over the top, and we would watch all sorts of rubbish, as she would call them, damning the lack of budget and pointing out quite often the wires that you could see holding up the monsters. And in one particularly excellent yet awful film, Attack of the Killer Shrews, she made me realise that the shrews were in fact dogs that were dressed up as murderous rodents. These sofa hours were spent with joy as my gran would know how scared I was getting by the amount I would talk my way through the film and how I would find convenient times to ask questions to detract myself from the fear. The fun of B-movies was something we shared for the whole of her life and we exchanged box sets of 50 plus B-movies, writing down our favourites and quite often ones I loved, she thought were a load of old rubbish, but that always made me laugh. She was definitely the kind of person to tell you something was terrible, but you'd always catch her watching those ones on repeat. The lady definitely did protest too much. As I grew up, my obsession for zombies lingered, and I do still find a good old-fashioned zombie movie incredibly comforting. I also am still obsessed with what's a horror sci-fi musical that she introduced me to, which is Jeff Wayne's War of the Worlds. If you've been a long-time listener of the podcast or viewer of my YouTube channel, you'll know I absolutely adore it so much that my whole left arm is tattooed with the album artwork. For possibly one of the most terrifying yet exciting bedtimes of my childhood, my gran put me and my older sister to bed on camp beds at the foot of her bed. Before tucking us in for the night, she said, oh, I've got a good bedtime story tape, and put on side one of the album before plunging us into darkness and closing the door. I remember lying wrapped in my sleeping bag, too terrified to move in fear that I might be eaten by a bloodthirsty Martian. What made all of this worse was that my sister fell asleep soon after, and soon I was alone in the pitch black with the terrifying album echoing in my ears. Asking my gran about this many years later on a visit to her in her care home, unfortunately by that point dementia was setting in, she didn't remember the exact moment she did that to us and created one of the most terrifying experiences of my life. But she did tell me how much she loved War of the Worlds and how she loved watching horror movies with both of us. We also reminisced about a trip to Madame Two Swords and the Chamber of Horrors, where I was also equally mentally scarred yet super intrigued in the world of historic true crime. So why am I telling you my life story? Well, two reasons. Firstly, as it's Halloween, well, in fact, it's now past Halloween, but let's not worry about that fact. It seemed only right to delve into my two passions and pair them together to create something for you. 
being horror movies and London. And secondly, I'm just recovering from a bout of COVID, which has completely wiped me out and messed up my schedule entirely, which has meant my original Halloween plans for content were entirely decimated this year. So I thought today would be a nice time to sit down and share with you my absolute favourite things and to talk about some of, in my opinion, the best horror movies that have been filmed in London and give you a little bit of horror history with that macabre London twist. London lends itself as a character in many a horror movie for good reason. It's a historical landscape which exudes its thousands of years of human habitation from its metaphorical pores. It's a city of ghosts, and even when the streets are deserted, it still sits grandiose, whispering to anyone brave enough to venture out, making sure you never feel fully alone. Londoners don't live in London, they belong to the city. We live in the belly of the beast, and she's always watching and waiting. On sunny days, the city is filled with joy, but on a cold and dark rainy night, when you decide to take an ill-advised shortcut, even if there wasn't the fear of any malevolent citizens waiting with ill intent, the streets feel ominous and heavy, and I, for one, actually love that feeling. As well as being a beautiful backdrop, the city's dark alleyways, foggy streets and ancient buildings evoke a sense of mystery and foreboding, which is often conducive to the horror genre inspiring many a director to create something magnificent. The Victorian era has a lot to answer for when it comes to London's lasting legacy of horror. Writers such as Mary Shelley, Bram Stoker and Robert Louis Stevenson all contributed to the horror genre and built a city of monsters. During the same period, many real-life monsters such as Jack the Ripper had killing sprees and the subsequent folklore which was also created at the same time has muddied with these real-life atrocities to create a fabled romanticised jumble of blood-soaked, fog-filled streets which in all reality didn't really exist. Even a whole tourist attraction has been created off the back of this jumble of real-life history and folklore at the London Dungeon and many people, on account of that place, still believe many fables to be true, such as Sweeney Todd being a real person. So it was only a matter of time before this ideological London made it big on the silver screen. Having said that, I'm first going to talk about a film which doesn't actually exist, and wasn't even filmed in London. For some horror lovers, there is one film which can never be watched, leaving their completest fantasies unfulfilled. And when I say some horror lovers, I mean me. London After Midnight was a silent film shot in 1927 by director Todd Browning. Browning started off his career as a circus performer, but took a career swerve and ended up directing films. He became the horror director du jour in the late 20s and throughout the 1930s when he directed the first talkie under the Universal Monsters umbrella, Dracula. London After Midnight, which preceded Dracula by four years, starred Lon Chaney, an actor known as the Man with a Thousand Faces due to his canny ability to give fantastic character performances, but also his skill as a makeup artist. Chaney would always do his own makeup for his films, and he was a master of his craft. Chaney played not one, but two characters in the film, doubling as the main detective, but also the feared man in the beaver hat, as the character is referred to. So, now you want to know what it's all about, right? Well, to summarise the plot very quickly, Roger Balfour, a high society gentleman, is found dead at home. 
Initially, his death is declared a suicide by a Scotland Yard representative, Inspector Burke, played by Cheney, despite objections. Five years later, strange occurrences in the Balfour Mansion reveal vampiric figures, leading to a re-investigation. Burke becomes sceptical about the undead and exhumes Balfour's empty tomb. Grisly events unfold and Burke believes Balfour was murdered. Sir James, Balfour's friend, is hypnotised into the past, revealing that he killed Balfour and faked his suicide to marry Balfour's daughter, Lucille. Burke identifies Sir James as the killer. They all drink lemonade. The end. The marketing for the film featured some beautiful posters and stills of Cheney's horrifying makeup as the man in the beaver hat. Now, for those of you that are listening to the podcast version and who don't currently have the visual of Cheney on screen in front of you, the hat in question isn't like a trapper's hat, which is what I initially thought of when I heard that. It's a beaver skin hat, which is a very smooth, smart looking top hat. However, the face that sits beneath it is quite horrific and scary. If you think of what your sleep paralysis demon looks like, then yeah, it's basically that. The film made over a million at the box office when it was released, which made it a success with MGM, its distributor, and scored a few more directing gigs with Browning afterwards with the company. Despite being set in London, the film was shot in California, but that didn't stop the marketing team using Tower Bridge and the promotional poster for the movie. So, why does the film not exist? Well, it did at one point, but the film itself was sadly destroyed in a fire at the MGM Vault in 1965. The huge fire destroyed the contents of Vault 7 at MGM, which contained hundreds of silent films, which due to the flammable nature of nitrate film, went up in an instant, reducing a vast amount of cinema history to nothing but ash. The last known print of London after midnight was in the vault, and in a time before videos, copies hadn't been made, meaning the film literally disappeared into smoke. The destruction of the film has led to many horror lovers to pine over the lost media, wondering forever what it may have been like. However, from what critics said at the time, the film was mid-range and not particularly fantastic, so if a secret copy were to be found somewhere, it would more than likely not live up to the hype. The legend of London After Midnight has persisted, in part due to the captivating promotional images and posters associated with the film, which featured Cheney's haunting, vampiric character with sharp teeth and his sinister top hat, which definitely creates insatiable intrigue that can never be satiated due to the destruction of the movie. Luckily, a remake of the film does survive as the 1935 movie Mark of the Vampire, which stars Bela Lugosi, is still around. However, the chilling makeup effect Cheney created wasn't replicated in the newer version, but the script was said to be a welcome addition and made for a more well-rounded viewing experience, according to critics. But a remake still doesn't quell the curiosity of inquiring minds, and to try and combat this, various reconstructions and still photos from the original film have been compiled over the years to give modern audiences a glimpse of what London After Midnight might have been like. But despite these efforts, the film itself remains lost entirely, leaving its legacy as a tantalising and elusive piece of cinema history, which is just out of reach. So all of that sounds horrifying so far, but you know what is good for helping you stay focused enough to escape scary vampires lurking in the dark? Magic Mind. 
I'm so pleased to say that Magic Mind have partnered with me again so I can share with you all about their magical elixir. I adore Magic Mind. I always have some in my kitchen cupboard and so I'm really pleased to be able to tell you about how wonderful this little drink is. You know by now that I love this little super drink which helps me so much with creating the episodes you've been hearing for a little while now. I'm finding that the longer I'm using Magic Mind, which has been quite a while now, the more clarity and focus it brings me when it comes to combating my procrastination streaks which can sometimes go on for days. But after drinking these little green shots for a while daily, it really does help me to stop messing about and just get on with things I've been putting off. I've actually found that having a magic mind and my regular coffee alongside each other gives me the jolt of caffeine my body is used to now, but I then get the calm clarity of magic mind. It's a win-win situation. You know that on the show, I often have to rake over very tedious documents and it can be a very tiresome process. So it's easy to get distracted and pick up my phone and waste time, but Magic Mind gives you that direct focus you need to get through it. When I've had a shot of Magic Mind in the morning, about an hour before I start my script writing, I really find it helps me just breeze through the tedious bits and helps me retain the info I need to create my episodes, which caffeine was only really hindering me with before. The little shots, which are so cute and dinky, have a balance of nootropics and adaptogens inside, including lion's mane and cordyceps mushrooms, which are proven to help with clarity and focus, along with a nice helping of green tea. And I recently discovered they have vitamin C and D in them, along with echinacea and honey, all things which have been super beneficial for me getting over my recent bout of COVID, as my body can definitely do with all of that good stuff. I've been mixing it into a wonder drink and adding extra lemon and lime juice and a bit more honey to it and it's really, really soothing. It's helped me get rid of the brain fog and it really does work wonders for that. But if you don't have time to make a fancy drink with them, they're also small enough to pop in your pocket and drink on the go. I find the grab and go option great for when I'm travelling or when I simply just don't have enough time to spare. It means I can get the boost I need conveniently whilst I'm on the go. I would never recommend anything that I don't actually like myself, so you're safe in the knowledge that this is an excellent way to start your mornings, and I honestly feel this has really helped me to be able to concentrate better for longer and to contribute to bringing you the episode you're currently enjoying. Seeing how well it works for me, I would really encourage you to try it out as well if you're having trouble being 100% in some days. It's a total game changer. Now, here's the really exciting bit. You thought Magic Mind had given you some fabulous deals in the past. Well, this is a proper, proper discount, which you're going to want to jump on straight away. If you're interested in trying Magic Mind for yourself, then you can get a whopping 50% off a subscription. Now, that's a proper deal. Or 20% off your first one-time purchase by visiting the Magic Mind website at www.magicmind.com forward slash macabre London. The 50% off code is only valid for 10 days, so if you want to get that really good 50% off and to try it for yourself to start on your better focus journey, you'll have to be quick. That's www.magicmind.com forward slash m-a-c-a-b-r-e-l-o-n-d-o-n and use my offer code m-a-c-a-b-r-e-l-o-n-d-o-n. Be quick, don't miss out. Thanks for listening and supporting our sponsor. And now let's get back to the episode. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. So now we've heard about a lost movie, let's move on to some which you can actually add to your next London-themed horror movie marathon. I've picked just a few of my favourite London-based horror movies and now it's time for me to nerd out about them, so I hope you're ready. First up, let's take a look at a film which doesn't get the recognition I personally think it deserves and that's Deathline. Deathline is a 1972 British horror film. The plot revolves around a series of disappearances on the London underground. When a detective investigates, he discovers a horrifying secret, a group of Victorian cannibalistic cave-dwelling survivors from a long-forgotten tunnel collapse. As he tries to stop their gruesome killings, he unearths a chilling and grotesque underground society, which may be entirely out of control. Deathline, which is also known as Raw Meat in some regions, was directed by Gary Sherman. The film stars Donald Pleasance as Detective Inspector Calhoun, David Ladd as Alex Campbell, and Hugh Armstrong as the cannibalistic survivor known as only The Man. Christopher Lee is also in the film, and he took the part purely because he wanted to work with the film's lead, Donald Pleasance. However, with Lee being 6'5", he towered over 5'6", Pleasance, and to avoid making the lead seem tiny in comparison and taking away his impact, the pair don't actually appear on screen together unless seated. The movie was filmed in the disused British Museum station, as I discussed in a previous episode of my series on the spooky side of the Tube Network. The old station itself was reputedly haunted by the ghost of an Egyptian pharaoh who was taken, or should that be stolen, and brought to England to be displayed in the British Museum. The British Museum is said to have a secret tunnel under the Egyptian collection room which leads into the station, and it's believed the ancient spirit would roam the tunnel in the dark, whispering curses. Now, I believe when you watch this film, there is an almost otherworldly strange feeling to it. It's an odd slice of cinematic history, which rarely gets an outing, but it manages to capture the sometimes unsettling feeling of travelling on the tube, particularly if you've ever stayed on the Northern Line and done the entirety of the Kennington Loop, which, if you don't know, is another haunted piece of track. But if you want that full story, listen to my Secrets of the Northern Line episode. As well as capturing the ominous feeling of being deep under the London pavement, the film is also a wonderful snapshot of the transport system in the 1970s. 
The old trains look functional yet stylish, and the costumes are very of the time. So, if you fancy a good peek into a time capsule of the 70s in London, maybe minus the cannibalistic Victorians, but who knows, then make sure you check it out. Moving on, now it's time to stay firmly underground and to explore another, albeit more modern, tube tale, and that's the movie Creep. The 2004 film, which stars Frankie Patenti, who has been in loads of stuff, but who is probably most known for playing the lead in Run Lola Run, plays Kate, who finds herself having missed the last tube home one evening after a party when she dozes off on the platform. If the thought of having to get the night bus wasn't enough to strike the fear of God into her, she finds herself alone and locked in the station. But is she really alone? Can she survive the night, or will whoever or whatever is lurking in the tunnels find her? The film is disturbing, to say the least, but it definitely plays again on the unsettling feeling of being alone on a tube platform, wanting desperately to be safe at home. The film was shot on not one, but two disused stations, both on the Jubilee line. For the modern-looking platform, Aldwych was used, and for the tunnels, a closed section of Charing Cross stood in. There wasn't an effort to change the name of the station, as the director wanted the film to feel real. Whilst filming, he did experience how real things could be when he suffered a minor electric shock when he stepped on a residual rail, which, whilst wasn't live, had some built-up electricity left in it. Luckily, the shock didn't cause him any long-lasting damage. Now, there will be spoilers here, so if you don't want to hear any, skip forward about a minute or two. I'll wait. Three, two, one, time's up. Okay, so the killer on the movie, Craig, who is played by Sean Harris, decided to go method with the role and wanted the actors to be genuinely frightened of him, so he decided not to socialise with the cast and kept his makeup a surprise from them until they were on screen together with him to get the best takes possible. The intricate makeup took seven hours each time to put on Harris and took three hours to remove, meaning he was in makeup ten hours a day, not including filming time. That must have been a very tired set by the end of the shoot. Now, the marketing for the film caused quite a stir with TFL. The poster, which features the front of a tube train with a bloody handprint on the glass inside, was banned from being displayed within tube stations as TFL thought the image would be too disturbing for passengers. Nowadays, I'm sure it would be approved within a minute, and there would probably be an immersive launch night on the platform, but back in 2004, it was deemed far too scary. Now, I don't 100% love this film, but I do love its use of the London Underground Network, and it's a really interesting use of old stations and storage units. It makes for a creepy watch, pardon the pun, and if you've not seen it, it's definitely worth a go. Now, the next film I want to talk about is my all-time favourite London horror movie, and in fact my all-time favourite horror movie, and that's 28 Days Later. I first saw 28 Days Later on DVD the week it came out in Blockbuster Video. I rented it and took it to my then boyfriend's house and we watched it and the moment it finished I wanted to watch it again. I found it horrifically terrifying but so compelling. I thought and still think that it's just a perfectly made film. Now, if you've not yet been lucky enough to watch this film, I urge you not to listen to the rest of the show because I will spoil it for you and instead go and find it right now and watch it for the majesty of the beginning of the film alone. 
The pairing of the excellent score, along with the desolation of London, is incredibly powerful and lets you know this is serious shiz. The city is dead. Released in 2002 and written by Alex Garland, who wrote The Beach, he's also gone on to direct films like Annihilation, Ex Machina, and his latest one, Men, which I thought was magnificent. And, well, now's not the time to talk about that, but that's a very good film. Anyway, it was directed by Danny Boyle, who before this directed Trainspotting and The Beach, which is where he and Alex first started working together. At the early stages of production, the pair sat and talked at length about how to make the film believable and realistic to the viewer. This manifested in a number of ways. Firstly, the cast were picked on purpose from relative obscurity. By using relatively unknown actors who had mainly done stage work or more background roles, both Boyle and Garland knew they could harness the feeling that these were real people caught up in a familiar nightmare world. However, as a result of their stellar acting in this film, pretty much everyone went on to become major stars. The main group of survivors who band together are Jim, the main protagonist, who is played by Killian Murphy, who most people will know as the lead in Peaky Blinders, along with a ton of other Hollywood movies he's done now, with his most recent hit being Oppenheimer, Naomi Harris, who went on to Pirates of the Caribbean and played a main character in no less than three Bond movies, and Brendan Gleeson, who is one of my favourite ever actors. He went on to play Mad-Eye Moody in the Harry Potter franchise and then was just nominated for an Oscar for the Banshees of Inner Sharon this year in 2023. Gleeson was arguably known before this and his filmography is extensive, but his star really started to rise after his involvement with 28 Days Later. Another tactic to make the film seem believable was that it wasn't shot on regular film cameras. It was one of the first ever films to be shot entirely on digital, meaning the film was easier and quicker to film. Watching the film back nowadays, you can tell that this was an experimental use of a new technology, as it's nowhere near as clear as it would be nowadays, but it gives the film an almost home movie slash CCTV kind of feel, which makes it feel gritty and a bit like found footage. Now, in case you haven't seen it and you are still listening or it's been a while since you've seen it, then here's a quick refresher of the plot for you. 28 Days Later begins in central London in an animal testing laboratory, which sounds like a cheesy trope, but it's actually quite harrowing to watch. And straight away, we know things are going to get very, very bad. Animal rights activists release some chimps who have been infected with a new virus known as Rage, which has been developed through exposure to a 24-hour stream of footage shown to the chimps of the world's worst atrocities, violence and heinous acts. After the activists release the chimps, this is when things begin to go downhill very quickly, and we get our first death on camera as one of the activists is torn apart by a chimp. We then flash forward 28 days later. Jim wakes up from a coma in an abandoned hospital and realises things aren't right. A key has been slipped under his locked door and he manages to escape the abandoned and wrecked hospital, emerging into a deserted world. Then begins one of the most innovative and eerie sequences in film history. Jim wanders the streets of central London entirely alone, shouting, but no one is around. We see him cross Westminster Bridge under the shadow of the Elizabeth Tower, better known as Big Ben, which is strewn with hurriedly discarded tourist hat mementos. 
He then progresses around deserted Westminster, Piccadilly Circus and the Financial District, but before stumbling into a church where he... Well, I won't ruin it entirely at this point, but it's incredibly unsettling and makes you understand the horror of what has happened over the last 28 days and the journey he's about to go on just to stay alive. This is when we see the first infected person out in the wild, so to speak. And from this point on, we embark on a journey with Jim to survive. He is saved by and then joins a group of survivors and they embark on a harrowing journey through and away from the lost hope of a decimated London, which is overrun with rage-infected humans. They flee to find safety, encountering both infected and dangerous humans along the way, one of which happens to be Christopher Eccleston, who went on to be Doctor Who for one series. The film explores themes of survival, the systemically inherited savagery of human nature and the consequences of a catastrophic pandemic which quickly destroys the mainland. So I've already covered Jim's lonely walk through London, but what makes these scenes so incredible is that they feel like they would be entirely impossible to shoot on location, but the planning and execution to create the scenes had to be impeccable. Often working to very tight timelines, the scenes had to be shot early in the morning and as quickly as possible to avoid holding up traffic. As if you've ever stepped foot in London, you'll know nothing stops David from accounting in his navy blue suit from getting to work on time. He will literally elbow you in the eye to make it onto a packed tube in order to get his spreadsheet submitted, so a little metal barrier wouldn't stop him. To avoid upsetting the daytime commuters, the empty London scenes were shot on weekends, and as roads were sometimes closed for up to an hour, Danny Boyle himself decided that to placate the amount of London cabbies that would be annoyed with him, he hired a lot of very attractive marshals to place on the barriers, and they were told to be charming and chatty, which he said got a good response, and their initial anger turned to interest. As it was the weekend when they were shooting, he also said the majority of people that discovered the filming were people heading home after a night out on the town. And they seemed to be more interested than annoyed and would stand and watch the filming taking place. A number of other prominent London locations appear throughout the film, ones which are more likely to be recognised by locals, such as the imposing brutalist Balfron Tower, which sits towering next to the entrance to the Blackwall Tunnel which also features briefly before morphing into the Limehouse Link Tunnel, which was able to be closed for filming, unlike the main route between South and East London. Canary Wharf pops up repeatedly in the background of the film, and at one point, the tracks of the Docklands Light Railway are used as a safe travel route. Unlike many other films set in London, it avoids darting all over the place, which means if you know the city, it feels plausible and real. It feels achievable to travel on foot between Westminster to Deptford. It's a long walk, but it's not out of the realms of possibility to do so. However, I don't know if you could go that distance without being attacked by a rage-infected person, but a helpful rule was created that travelling during the day seems to help the survivors avoid any attacks. At the time, the zombie trope was that they were all slow-moving and, as such, easily escapable but having fast-moving zombies really upped the fear factor. But what we have to remember is that the people in the film aren't actually zombies. They're rage-infected humans, and for that reason, Danny Boyle wanted to make sure their movements were realistic. Working with a specialist movement director, Toby Sedgwick, the pair created some of the most visceral and terrifying performances ever seen on screen. 
to make sure the first ever sighting of an infected person on screen was as terrifying as it possibly could be, Toby himself played the part. Now, on a personal note, when I first watched this film, and even still to this day, I found the performance by Toby to be absolutely bone-chilling. So immediately after watching the film and going to bed that night, you can imagine how thrilled I was when my then-boyfriend woke me up in the middle of the night after using the loo with a replica performance. As you can imagine, we didn't stay together for very long. 28 Days Later is an innovative, boundary-smashing piece of cinema. The chances Danny Boyle and Alex Garland took were out there, but as they backed up their work with a ton of research and a hell of a lot of determination and conviction in that idea, they made a film which not only features London as one of the main characters, but it turns it into the first victim of the outbreak. It transforms a once vibrant, bustling and seemingly immortal sissy into a withering, spluttering, wounded victim breathing its last breaths before being deserted by the last signs of life it holds in the form of its final survivors, which makes for a terrifying kill. It makes a bold statement that if London is dead, then the rest of the world doesn't stand a chance. It's a love letter to the city, which says, if you can kill London, then you can kill life. So now we've covered just a few films from London's cinematic history, and I do have many, many more films on my list, but we simply don't have time to cover them all, so I'd just like to give some honourable mentions. And if you'd like to hear me talk about these films or places in another episode like this, then do please let me know. I can't do a London horror movie review without, of course, mentioning everyone's favourite rom-zom-com, and that's Shaun of the Dead. The horror comedy, written and directed by Edgar Wright and Simon Pegg, and starring the cream of the crop of comedy actors, is a veritable guided tour around Crouch End in North London. However, the film's infamous pub, The Winchester, is actually in Deptford in South London, but sadly has since been converted into flats, which means we can't all go there, have a nice cold pint, and wait for all of this to blow over. One location in London may as well, at this point, just be a horror movie set, and that's Highgate Cemetery. This Victorian Valhalla is nowadays a well-looked-after and beloved burial ground, but back in the Wild West days of the 1970s, when the London Cemetery Company, which owned both there and also Nunhead Cemetery, went bankrupt, they locked the doors and left the place to go into rack and ruin. This meant that the place became known for occult activity and the legend of the so-called Highgate Vampire, which one day I promise I will do an episode on, maybe for next Halloween. But anyway, the cemetery was a location for many a horror film, most of which were Hammer Horror. The most famous of the movies to have been shot there was the abominable Dr. Fives, which wasn't actually a Hammer Horror film despite saying that, the tomb of which is part of the Circle of Lebanon in the centre of the cemetery. Many films have been shot in the cemetery itself, but nowadays, as the cemetery still buries people, the view is it's rather disrespectful to have film companies use the places somewhere horrifying out of respect to those grieving, which is a sensible and compassionate move. That doesn't mean it isn't still used as a film set, but just not for anything scary. Now, as I said, I have plenty more where that came from, so if you want some more horror history from London, then do please let me know and I would be more than happy to oblige. And again, I'm sorry this is after Halloween, but I hope you can adopt the approach that I have, which is that horror isn't just for Halloween, it's for life. 
So the next time you visit London, be thankful its heart is still beating, as you never know the next time a director may just decide to make it star in one of their films, only to kill the place in stone-cold blood. Don't have nightmares, and definitely don't date a guy that pretends to be a murderous, infected, rage-filled human in the middle of the night. Unless you're into that kind of thing. this spooktacular episode that was very fun and thank you for letting me nerd out on something i love i hope you enjoyed it as much as me if you enjoyed that episode and you want more of them then you can support me in a variety of ways including signing up to my patreon using the thanks button on youtube heading to my coffee page or checking out my amazon wishlist or buying some merch like this lovely t-shirt that i'm wearing currently I also have my PayPal link if you just want to bung me a couple of quid to say thanks and all donations go straight back into making the show. If you head to the support me section in the show notes on the podcast or just click on the video info on YouTube, then everything you need is there. And it's not all about money, sharing the show around on social media, telling your friends, the tube driver or your local horror movie director about the show all really helps me out. Leaving a review is a wonderful help. A comment, a thumbs up, follow, subscribe, all of that fun stuff, which is all 100% free, is more useful than you know and helps the show to grow our lovable gang of ghouls and will allow me in the long run to bring you more of the haunted history we both love. A big thanks to my amazing top tier legendary executive Patreon producers, Amy, Christina, Christoph, Kate, Kevin, Lisa, Mary, Meg, Rose, Sally, Sam, Sarah, Teresa, V and Veronica, and all of our other patrons too. If you'd also like your name read out by me at the end of every episode or your name in the show notes, then make sure you check out my Patreon where you can also get exclusive episodes like the show I have with my other half called Having a Problem, where we have a general chit chat about a topic once a fortnight and try to solve the overarching problem we both have with it, with limited success so far, I must say. And if you like today's episode, then we do a lot of this kind of stuff on that show. It starts for as little as just £3 a month for two extra episodes a month, which is a bargain in my opinion, as they're usually over an hour long each time. So I hope to see you over there at patreon.com forward slash macabre London so I can personally welcome you to the Ghoul Gang. And lastly, thanks very, very much to Magic Mind for sponsoring this episode. Make sure you check them out and don't forget your discount code macabre London. Thanks for joining me for another macabre tale from London's past. I've been Nikki Druce. Remember to stay spooky and a belated but very happy Halloween from me. And I'll see you ghouls next time.